0: thing, Jen was talking so easily about those experiences she had as a a young lady, probably in her late teens, early twenties, that lady who got the word from the Lord to go and say to her, God sees what you're doing and he doesn't like it, but he loves you. Do you know that that woman got a death threat because of that, for that obedience that the dealer went to Jen and said, tell that lady to keep her nose out of my business. Otherwise she will die. And uh, Jen said she never saw the lady again. The lady stayed well away from her. But the fact of the matter is, as she knew she was going into something that was challenging, bringing a word to somebody who was imprisoned. And it takes great courage to do that when you're facing evil men with guns. And God is calling us to a place of bravery. I purposefully didn't prepare a message this morning because I said to Jen, whatever you talk about, I'm just going to swing with the spirit and we'll go around that. And when she was talking, I was prompted in my subconscious or prompted in my spirit. People say the Holy Spirit told me, but really... When the Holy Spirit tells you something, you have something in your subconscious that just is made aware of a passage of scripture, and it's not English, it's just a prompting. I had this gentle nudging that before Joshua took the promised land, God said to him many times, Be brave and courageous. And if our Christian walk is not calling us to be brave and courageous, we are not doing it according to God's will. Bottom line, we need to be challenged. And it's a challenging walk in this day and age. In the world we live in today, so many things are anti-God. That if we're going to stand on God's word and God's principles, we will be challenged. Because it's not popular to walk in the precepts of the king. The world does not like to be told what to do. They like to do their own things. And listen, in Egypt... When God's people were in bondage and enslaved, there were lots of different gods that were being worshipped, and they had one thing in common, they had no moral requirements. That's why all the different gods in the world are so popular with the world, because there's no moral requirement. Here comes the God of the Old Testament, the God of Moses, the God who has a moral requirement and says, Be holy, for I am holy, and I am your true Father, and I want my children to reflect me, and the only way you can reflect me is by being holy. So that's interesting. And here's the thing. So I I thought to myself, Well, so we're going to talk about Joshua, because that popped into my mind, and I, I was reading a story to Kirsten last night, and I just opened her little children's Bible at random, and guess what? It was all about Joshua, Be very brave and courageous because I'm going to send you into challenging territory. You're going to take the promised land and it's going to be difficult. But I will be with you everywhere you put your foot. That land belongs to you, says God. I am for you and not against you. I will make a way where there seems to be no way. I will open doors and I will bring you through and you will see victory and success. But it's not going to seem like it. You're going to face challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge. And it looks like everything's going to come against you. But you will win, because I'm on your side. So be brave, Joshua. So Joshua was the only one, him and Caleb, who got into the promised land. His whole generation didn't make it. They died in the wilderness, and they were the circumcised ones. The generation following Joshua, they weren't circumcised. And they got circumcised, if you read the book of Joshua, probably chapter 3, if my memory serves me. They got circumcised at a place called Gilgal. And the Bible says in Joshua chapter 3, where they got circumcised, the act of circumcision, the act of cutting the flesh, was rolling away the reproach of Egypt. Well, that's interesting. Egypt had a reproach. So they couldn't go into the promised land with the reproach of Egypt on them. So all of those people who died in the wilderness, they weren't allowed to go into the promised land, had too much of Egypt, and Egypt being the world, being a mix. God wants people to be of one strain, and that strain is pure faith. So people who don't have pure faith aren't really going to get to see the face of God or enter into His promises. Interestingly, we have all of those men being circumcised, and the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. So that's that's quite interesting because in the book of Corinthians it talks about a circumcision of the heart. This is a circumcision not made by the hand of man. It's a circumcision made by God as God comes into the heart when you receive Christ and He cuts away the flesh. He doesn't deal with it absolutely. We've still got the old sin nature, but we have an awareness of God's nature in us. So when the Bible says, You've received Christ. behold, all things have new and all things have passed away. You are now a new creation. He's not saying that he's re- removed your brain and put a new brain, and we've still got the same brain. He's not saying that he's removed your body and put a new body on you. You've still got the same old body. Isn't that a pity, Dave? Sometimes, when we get those aches and pain, and "Oh, I wish the Lord had given me a new body." So what is new? Well, the thing that God does in us when we receive Christ is the spirit is renewed. And, in God's opinion, the Spirit is all that really matters. Without having His Spirit in us, we are basically nothing. Having His Spirit within us, we become God-like. And in John chapter 17, Jesus makes an outstanding promise. This is something that blows people's minds. This is the promise. He says, you are going to be part of the Godhead. You are going to be part of the Trinity. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be. We say, where is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is part of the Godhead. He's part of God. He's part of the Trinity. So God is saying, I'm going to make you part of God. I'm going to make you part of me. The Bible says that we are going to be joint heirs with Christ. Not lesser, equal. And this is the great miracle, is that God comes to earth to someone trapped in addiction, With a gentle answer to turn away wrath. The Bible says in the book of John chapter 1 that the word was with God. That word was Jesus. So Jesus Christ was the expression of God on the earth. So God sends his word, which is Christ, and that word is gentle. And the word is, I forgive you, come to me, and I'm going to take you from where you were in the bottom of the ash pile and I'm going to seat you up with kings. In fact, you are going to seat, be seated at the right hand of the king of kings, and you are going to be equal to him. The Bible's making an incredible promise here. It's saying you are going to be equal to God, which is what caused Satan to fall in the beginning. Satan lifted himself up and said, I want to be equal to God. I want to be as great as God. And he got puffed up in arrogance and got thrown out. Then he went to Adam and Eve and said, Is it really so? And tested all God's commands. And and he sold them the lie that they would be like God when they were already like God. And God said, the New Testament is much greater than that. You were like me. You were made in my image. You used to walk in my anointing. I'm going to come and I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you me. You're going to be part of me. It's much greater than just walking with you, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the garden. You are going to get much closer to me now than you ever were in the Garden of Eden. What Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden is nothing compared to what we have through Christ as we go to God. That's why Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the soft word. There is no answer. I am the answer. I am that word. That brings people in. There's no other way. A big challenge. A really big challenge. So as I was meditating on that, I saw something else. And this is interesting. Joshua died at the age of 110. He lived a a good age. And all of those men that he circumcised went on to be great and victorious in their endeavors. Okay, they didn't take out all of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and all the otherites that were in the promised land that they were told to take out. They didn't drive them out before them. They left them there. And those races then infiltrated God's people and and, uh, caused them to fall in sin again as they drew them away from pure faith and back into worshiping gods that had no moral precepts or desires. Here's the thing. When Joshua died... And when those men who were circumcised at Gilgal died, which was the rolling away of the reproach, which was the circumcision, which was the cutting of the flesh, which was dealing with the sin issue and saying, "Now I'm making you in my eyes as if you hadn't sinned. It was symbolic. It wasn't actual. When they died, the Bible says, after that, the generation did not serve God. Nobody served God. And that's interesting because when I was working in Britain, I was working in a, in a home. It was the only, I was studying theology and I had to find a job that had hours that could work around my Bible studies. And I found a job in a mental home where the people had aggressive and violent behavior. And I was uh, 26, 27. And I can handle that. It's like playing rugby. So I went and I put my hand up and said, I'll, I'll come and work for you. So I worked for them, and, and these guys were extremely violent. We we weren't allowed to ever get angry. We had to stay calm. We had to defuse the situation. We had to protect ourselves. And we had to restrain them when they got really violent and angry. And every day I would get attacked. But I was always ready for it and always expecting to be attacked and, and actually made really good friends with these blokes who were attacking us randomly as they had their episodes. And the one guy I was looking after, his name was Richmond. And I got on with Richmond really, really well to the point that um, he stopped attacking me. <laughs> and, and he was quite, he calmed down. And I started talking to him about his family. I said, Richmond, what does your mother do? He says, oh, my mother's a lady of the night. She'll sleep with anybody for money. She's a lady of the night. I said, oh, that's rough, mate. How does that make you feel? He says, it's terrible. I'm so rejected. I'm My mom's never had time for me. She's always like left me alone and she's gone out into the night. And I said, don't you have any other family? She says, I've got a brother. He doesn't look anything like me. (laughs) He's much taller and he's got dark hair and I've got red hair. I think we probably have different fathers. So I said, "Um, what does your brother do? Oh, he's in jail. So I said, for what? Oh, armed robbery, vehicle theft, all sorts of stuff. So I said, gee, that's not so good. Do you and your brother get along? He says, yeah, I love my brother. He's the only brother I've got. He's very special to me. So I said, wow. So then I knew a little bit about the family, and this family was obviously fairly dysfunctional. The mom was going off at night with random people, and her her one son was permanently in prison, and the other son was in a home for violent people who had to be minded on a 24-hour basis. And one day the manager of the home called me and said, I want you to do me a favor. This bloke's grandmother... Is in hospital in Wales, and I want you to drive from Bristol to Wales, and you're going to take him, and you're going to visit Granny in hospital. So I said, oh, yeah, I'm up for that. We get out. So I remember going with Richmond, and we drove through to the Welsh countryside, and we found this big hospital where this old lady was at. And we went inside, and there was this little old lady in the bed, and she was Welsh. And a beautiful accent, and as happy as can be. And I said, "What happened to you?" And she said, "I had a big surgery. I think they must have taken a kidney out or something." And she said, "Look, it was weeping, but I just put my hand over that hole, and I prayed in the name of Jesus, and it got healed." And I said, "Are you are you Richmond's grandmother?" "Yeah." "No." "Is this your, Is this? Have we got the right lady?" And he said, "Yeah, that's my granny. Hi, grand. How you doing?" I said, what is going on here? You believe that when you put your hand on your wound that God will heal you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where did that come from? Oh, that came from my mother. Your mother. All right. So what was your mother? My mother sat in the meetings of Evan Roberts, the great revivalist, back in 1911. You know, when he used to preach, the whole church would shake and people would be thrown to the floor and demons would be driven out and people would be healed and everyone came to Jesus. Listen, when she said everyone came to Jesus, I went and did my homework. Everyone in the whole of Wales got born again. Everybody. The lot. There wasn't one person who wasn't born again. And and to the degree that if you look at the Welsh Football Cup, which is their very favorite sport, 1911, there's nothing on it. Because they canceled the game so that the star football players could go hit the streets and evangelize the people. They were really hunting for lost souls. There were none left. The whole country was born again. The prisons emptied. The policemen didn't have any work in 1911. So they formed up in groups of four and they went around from meeting to meeting singing because they didn't have anything else to do. The debt levels dropped because people started honoring their debt. Everybody got Christianized. Everybody got evangelized. It was as if that Evan Roberts was like Joshua coming in there with a fresh new message. And his message was, I am going to serve the Lord. You serve who you want to, but watch and see what God does through my life and my ministry. And he shook the nation. I mean, people still talk about it. They say it was just miraculous. Hardly anybody didn't get healed. Hardly anybody didn't get born again. The, the, the nation of Wales was thoroughly, thoroughly saturated with God to the degree that there wasn't a person who didn't receive the gospel message. Incredible. So I said, that was your mother. Yeah, you know what? She used to follow him from meeting to meeting. And wherever he went, she would go. And she, he, this old woman said, everybody, my friend, everybody knew Jesus personally. There wasn't a single person who didn't. Everybody followed him. I said, so then you came to the Lord through that. She said, yeah, my mom made sure I went to Sunday school. And then I hit her with a question. What happened to your daughter? She said, well, you know... I didn't want to force my religion on her, so I kind of let her make up her own mind. And if she wanted to go to church, she could. And I waited for her to get to the age where she'd be old enough to choose for herself. And when she got to that age, I honored any decision she decided to make. So I said, she decided not to serve God. Oh, no. I said, this is your grandson, Richmond. Yeah, you know that he doesn't know God at all. She says, yeah, it's really sad. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. And I thought back on that passage from Joshua, where the generation following the Joshua generation didn't know God at all. And this brings to mind something really important, and that is this. Apostasy happens real quick in society. In a 10-year, 20-year period, it's happened already. It's done. It happens real quick. And we're coming to the end of an era Where the men of God before the internet, before the distractions, before all the movies, before all the news, the men of God had nothing to do but seek God's will. And they were like the Joshua generation. And this is really serious because it gets to the point that the men who touched those men carry the message. But who is going to carry the message into the future? And we are at the point now, prophetically, we are at the point now where the youth, their lives are hanging in the balance. And it happened in Britain before because we we decided to set up an outreach in the streets of Bristol to the housing projects where all the underprivileged children could come. And I met a guy called Aaron. His surname was the same name as a great revivalist. His surname was Jeffries. He was 14 years old. It's probably in his family line. This great Jeffrey's character would go around preaching and having revival meetings around the whole of Britain. Aaron had stolen three cars, had a criminal record at the age of 14. And we started youth groups. And one day there was an incident where they started throwing things at the girls, and so we asked them to leave the youth group. And they got outside, and they started stoning the building, and we had to call the police to a Sunday school meeting on a Saturday. We called the coppers in and they had to take them away and then the parents called us a cult and the newspapers got involved and we just had to stop those meetings because the public didn't know anything about the message of God. If you'd done that back in the Welsh revival, you would have had the unbridled support of all the parents as they brought their kids in, but it's not happening now. I was on a bus and I looked out and I saw two young men teenagers, 13, 14, beating up an older guy. And I said to the bus driver, stop, stop. I've got to help that old man. Gee, I'm going to give these little blokes a hiding. And he said, my friend, don't even get off the bus. Don't stop because they've got about 20 friends hanging around the corner. You get off the bus, they will kill you. They're just messing with the old man. They'll leave him alone. It's a godless society. I was in a jeweler's store and she looked at a crucifix with Jesus on the crucifix. And she said, I want that cross with a little man on it. I said, do you know who that little man is? And she said, no, but isn't it cute? Oh my gosh. And so we are in a day and an age where people are consumed with the here and the now, with the internet, with current knowledge. You know, we know more about the last 24 hours than people know about the last 10 years. There's no sense of history. We don't know where we've come from. We just know about now and it's froth. It's all froth and gossip. We don't know the deeper principles of existence. Where do we come from? Who were the godly characters in our lives? What happened? How did we get to this? What's going on? And it's high time we had another revival. In fact, the Bible prophesies in the end times that revivals are going to be stronger, maybe fewer, but stronger. What's the time? Have I got a little bit more time? So Romans chapter 8, I'm going to finish with this. This is just my ramblings, but this is really what I feel God is saying to us. I believe it's a word in season, and it's not from notes. I probably couldn't write it down if you asked me to. This is just from my spirit, my subconscious, as I feel the spirit is speaking to me. In Romans chapter 8, there's a profound thing going on from verse 18, talking about the sufferings of the present time. Remember in the beginning, that old lady went to Jen who was in active addiction, and that old lady said to her, God says he knows you. God says he doesn't approve of what you're doing, but God says he loves you. Well, that was a remarkable event in her life. And that woman was brave to do that. And she was threatened with her life for doing something as simple as bringing a word of grace to someone who needed it. So in in the book of Romans, chapter 18, it's talking to Christians who are living the Christian life and enduring a little bit of persecution for doing the right thing. Because if you're going to do the right thing, people are going to knock you. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. In fact, when we get advertised too on the TV, we, we kind of know that they're lying to us. You know, they're overselling the product horribly. They're telling us what the product can do, and you'll see maybe a steam cleaner on TV, and they've got it there, and they just run it along the crack, and all the dirt and the grouting just jumps out at you, and you look at that, and it's brand new. So then you go and you buy that thing, and you run it along the crack, and it's just as dirty as it was before. And it's happening with all the products. They're saying that these products will really change your life, and you go and you buy them, and man, it's not honest. It's, they're just overselling everything. They get you trapped into contracts that you can't get out of. He has a nice tune for your phone, oh, that's going to cost you $5 a week for the next 10 years, and you can't get out of it. That kind of thing. If you're going to stand up for the truth, you're not going to be popular So Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Here's the thing. There is glory coming. We haven't experienced the fullness of the glory. We've just got hints of that glory at times. We've experienced little deposits of the glory. In fact, the Bible talks of the Holy Spirit as a down payment or a guarantee of the glory to come. It's just a taste of what's coming down the line. So if you've ever experienced a move of God, and if He's ever touched you, it's just a taste of what really is going to happen. Whoops, I'm not going to pick you up with one hand, girly. I might drop you, and that won't be glorious. It talks about the earth. It says in verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation earnestly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The Bible intimates that the earth kind of has an inherent intelligence in the life that is on it, talking about the plants and talking about the animals, anything that was created that has life. There's this expectation that something's coming. And the earth itself has this expectation that something's coming. It says that as this comes to fulfillment, so the earth starts to have earthquakes and floods and strange weather patterns and weird phenomenon and global warming and things we can't explain. The Bible says that this is going to happen towards the end times, and it's like birth pangs. The closer the birth pangs, the nearer the baby. I've been through it a couple of times. It's traumatic, but it's true. And we're going through events on the face of the earth at the moment that are traumatic. Have you seen the earthquakes in Nepal? It's traumatic. That is a major convulsion or a contraction as the earth is getting ready to birth something new. Something's coming. So the earth is expecting and it's groaning. The earthquakes, the pollution, the mining, the global warming, that is the groaning of the earth. What's it groaning for? It wants God to come through His people. It wants the sons of God to be manifest. Then we we go to the next one. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of whom you subjected it in hope. God said, there's a reason why I allowed this to happen. It's for your sake. So we have this responsibility. When we see the earthquakes in Nepal, we know that that is for the people of God. I carry the weight of that knowledge that I better be responsible for this information that I carry because terrible things are happening around the world that God permitted for the ones that he is saving. And the better we spread the message, the more people get lifted out of that. Because if we didn't lift them out of that, everything would be written off, it would all be lost. So we get to work. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, or the down payment of the Spirit, or the guarantee of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. We want it. We want God to come and be revealed in us so that we can walk as superhumans on the face of this earth, like Jesus did, signs and wonders and miracles and power. We want it. We're groaning for it. And then I read the next Little passage. It says in verse 26, likewise the Spirit, and I stopped there. I said, it says there, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weakness. But that's not the thread of what is going on in Romans chapter 8. The thread of what is going on in chapter 8 is the earth is groaning, the people of God are groaning. And then it says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's not the thread of what is happening. If you really want to get the thread of what is happening here, it says, and I've got to skip a bit, likewise the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's getting the true meaning out of that verse. He's helping us more desperately, more earnestly than we want it. God is groaning with groanings that cannot be uttered, Deeper than the earth is groaning, deeper than we are groaning, God's groanings can't even be uttered. They have such a depth of longing to them. You say, you want this? God wants revival even more. God wants revival even more. And, and we missed it when we say, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we don't know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercessions for us. It's true, the Spirit is praying for us. But he's groaning more than we're groaning. His groanings can't be uttered. God wants revival. God wants supernatural intervention. God wants people flattened by the power of God. God wants people to come together in great groups like in the first church on the day of Pentecost where thousands were added and thousands more were added, where they came together daily breaking bread and having communion and talking about the wonderful works of God, where people were being set free, where they were sending evangelists to Samaria and the Samaritans were busting the cities down with the move of God. And going from there to the uttermost parts of the earth as this revival spread. The Bible says the end-day revival will be greater than anything we've seen. Multitudes in the valley of decision according to the book of Joel. It's coming. And we can be in on it. If we brave, we can become that generation, the last generation that really makes the difference. Amen? That's something to think about, isn't it? Father, as we come before you today, we just thank you, Lord, that you are about to do a great work in our lives. First, Lord, you bring the word, then you build our faith, and then you do the work through our faith. As we watch, we see the works of God, signs and wonders, power, unbelievable ability and favor, grace and supernatural gifts. Father, we speak that over this body of Christians right now in Jesus' name, that you give us insight, the gift of discernment, the ability to walk among snakes and scorpions, tread on their heads, and not by any means be harmed. We thank you, Father God, for your word which lives among us and in us, and we ask, Father God, that you would touch us today as we leave here in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much.